Take a seat. Good to have you here and a special welcome to the people who missed the first welcome. <laughs> Lovely to have you here today. Um, today we are carrying on as we've been journeying through the book of Luke. And last week we um, touched on this tricky passage which talked about hell. And uh, if you weren't here last week, um, I've never seen such enthusiastic nods of people who were like, this is what I heard growing up. Thank you for addressing this tricky subject. So if you missed last week, just a blatant ad here, you can hear that on our YouTube channel. Go to our website, you'll get a link, and you can hear it's just got the, the, the message on that. I even had texts during the week from people who said, we came across your sermon on YouTube and watched it. It was very helpful. So there we go. I say that because this week, um, I'm propping up last week's sermon giving out the, the big ups, because this week is a uh, tricky passage, which I don't think I've got a slam dunk on, so sorry. Just leave <laughs> a warning before we go. It's, it's an awkward passage again. There's some interesting points. Um, journey with me as we read together. I'm going to read you this, this passage um, now, and then we're going to unpack it and try and understand what on earth is this about? So the apostles said to the Lord, show us how to increase our faith. And the Lord answered, if you had faith even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to the mulberry tree, may you be uprooted and planted into the sea, and it would obey you. When a servant comes in from plowing or taking care of the sheep, does his master say, come in and eat with me? No, he says, prepare my meal, put on your apron and serve me while I eat. Then you can eat later. And does the master thank the servant for what he was told to do? Of course not. In the same way, when you obey me, you should say, we are unworthy servants who have simply done our duty. I'm going to break this into two parts. Um, have a look at it. The, the first aspect of this is this idea that the tinsiest, tiniest amount of faith can see huge miracles. And Jesus gives this absurd example. If you have even this much tiny faith, you can say to a mulberry tree, go hop into the ocean, and it will. Now this, again, is another passage which I think has been abused by people in churches who say, well, we've got faith, we can see incredible things happen. And there becomes this strange blurring between perhaps Christianity and motivational speakers. Because sometimes the faith is about miracles and healings, and other times it's just about, you know, achieving more, getting more done, having the best marriage and the best family. Sure, they are things that God wants for us, but the way the language is often expressed it starts sounding like, you know, Tony Robbins as opposed to Jesus. And so here we get in church people saying, just have more faith and you'll see incredible things happen. You'll see wealth and health. Some people refer to that as the wealth and health gospel, that this is what we are to look for. But then it gets abused, I think, in really nasty ways. Um, Paul had a friend who at age 17 got diagnosed with cancer. She was in a Pentecostal church, and people from the church came charging in to all pray for her because they wanted to see the healing 
Now, I wonder when I hear this story, did they want to see the healing for her sake, or did they just want a miracle? Did they want to journey with her through the sickness, or did they just want to see triumph? She became sicker and sicker while people were praying for healing, and in the end had to have her leg amputated from below the knee. And the cancer returned, and she got sicker, and people gathered round her bed to declare that she was healed in Jesus' name. And when she wasn't, one of them said to her, a 17-year-old girl, it's because you don't have enough faith. And this is where scripture read wrong just becomes a weapon and a nasty one at that. Is this what Jesus is talking about? What is this passage about? Later on, I want to look at what is this all in the context of? When the disciples are saying, give us more faith, is that what they're referring to? I'm going to leave you hanging for a little bit because we're going to come and explore the context. What is it that they want more faith to do? Do they want more faith to see miracles? Or is there other challenges that are on their mind? Now, I don't know... And I think people throughout history have wrestled with the idea, why sometimes do you see healings? Why sometimes when people pray, do people get healed? And why do they sometimes not? I don't know. And I don't think anyone really does. But once I heard this woman speak, and she was in a wheelchair, and I think she had cerebral palsy, and she struggled to make herself understood. She couldn't write. She was very intelligent, but she was in a body that was, you know, letting her down, I guess, in some ways. She couldn't do what other people did. Now, she too had grown up her whole life in a Pentecostal church, and she said she'd been taken to healing meetings her whole life. And when overseas speakers would come, she'd be wheeled out, taken to the front, and people were desperate for her to be healed. You know, have you felt anything? Do you feel anything? And every time it was a no. And again, she said the messaging she got from her church community was, it's because you don't have enough faith. And I heard her speak, and I listened carefully, because sometimes she was tricky to understand, and she said this, it takes a lot more faith to believe in a God who loves me, and who purposes good for me, and cares for me when I'm not healed, than it would if I could get up and walk. Who had more faith? I think she did. She had more faith that God is good even in the midst of our struggles. And this is the tricky thing to balance. Sometimes we see prayers answered and sometimes we don't. And it is a mystery. How do we learn to understand whether God is good in the midst of this? So we come to the next part of this passage which I want to look at because I think this grates in our culture. And it's interesting, the passage, the the version of the Bible that I've read it from is quite a new one and it's written to me um, intelligible to ears in this century and this year. But it plays around and tries to soften and make sense of this tricky second half of the passage. So I want to read it to you in a version that's a little bit more word for word from the original. 
and we're going to face it head on. What on earth is Jesus saying here? Who among you would say to your slave who has just come in from plowing or tending sheep in the field, come here at once and take your place at the table? Would you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, put on your apron and serve me while I eat and drink? Later you may eat and drink. Do you thank the slave for doing what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were ordered to do, say, we are worthless slaves and have only done what we ought to have done. Another passage that if you look at the context of what we're seeing in the news of reports of churches, again raises questions about how we treat other people. And deeper than that, how does God treat us? This woman from the States makes this observation. In an age in which everything is a commodity, our workplaces and communities often behave as if this passage were an endorsement of non-mutual ownership of another's gifts and time. We see this from sweatshops to churches, when those in power claim the right to name and utilise another's gifts for the ends they have determined. This passage is neither an endorsement of slavery, nor a release from encouraging and affirming one another. Why does Jesus use illustration of slaves, and what's going on here? I think it's particularly hard to read this, and I can see why people change it and soften it in translations, because our picture of slavery is shaped by the last couple of centuries, not so much by the Roman Empire. And it was slightly different there, at times markedly so. A slave was part of a household, maybe like a cousin or an aunt or an uncle. So part of the household, um, and a slave could earn their freedom. So it was slightly less rigid, but you could have good slave owners and bad slave owners. A good slave owner, the slave would just be treated as one of the other members of the household. And in an era where hardly anyone earned wages, you know, this was just a way of life. But it still seems pretty brutal what Jesus is saying. Another thing to keep in mind too, because when I read that, I think of um, maybe servants in a medieval or even you know, a mansion in England and there's the servants down the bottom and here's some poor servant who's been out slaving all day and then has to come in and cook a meal and serve it. Not quite the same. In the Roman Empire, there was no breakfast. Everyone got up at the crack of dawn and went to work. And the first meal served was lunch. Now, in parallel to everyone working, there would have had to have been somebody preparing the meal. And so when in this passage it says, prepare me the meal, that's, it could easily be translated, bring me the meal that someone else has been preparing in parallel. So you've got a whole household of people that have been working all morning, and the, the master of the house would have been doing the same. They would have all been working, someone's preparing the meal, and then the slave is asked to bring it in. So that's a little bit of context. We don't know, is the slave owner a good slave owner or a bad slave owner, but it is peculiar how this uh, slave owner talks to the slave and then what we're asked to consider. So how do we understand it? It's interesting, um, I've come across two perspectives on this passage, and the first one invites us to consider ourselves as a slave owner. 
The apostles thought that if they just had more faith, they'd been more effective. Jesus draws from the power dynamics of slave and master to show them they already have enough of what they need. Masters bark orders at slaves because they can. They know their power and don't have to negotiate for more of it. While I wish Jesus had interrogated the institution of slavery, his point was this. If you apostles have such power and you do because I've given it to you, then you don't need permission to use it. So there's one perspective. Put yourself in the position of the slave owner. God has given you power. You don't need to ask for more. But here's a completely different point of view. This asks us to consider ourselves as the slave. The disciples misunderstand faith in quantifiable terms. Increase our faith. Jesus changes the subject, casting the disciples like worthless slaves. Jesus chides his disciples for their lack of faith. Smaller than a mustard seed, he transforms the issue of faith into the performance of duty. The one thing I take from this is it's okay to feel confused about the Bible because people have different perspectives on it. If you come to a passage and say, I don't understand this, how am I supposed to read it? So do the experts have these same questions. How do you read this? How do you interpret it? But how does that help us for today? How do we understand it? What is Jesus asking us to do? When you sit, relax, I read this lovely uh, um, interpretation by a guy called Walter Wink, who says this about this. The apostles say, increase our faith. Let's examine their presuppositions. They feel they don't have enough yet. That whatever the crisis, it will require more faith. That Jesus had more faith that he could give them more faith, that faith is able to be measured. But how much would be enough? That whole way of looking at it puts the accent on our doubts. Would 51% faith be enough? Would 65%, 90%? Will we ever have enough? Will we ever be good enough? Jesus' response demolishes their presuppositions. If you have any faith at all, you can do stupendous miracles. After all, they'd gone out healing. Jesus says, move trees into oceans or mountains into oblivion. All it takes is a minuscule amount. No more than that, symbolized by a tiny mustard seed. For faith is not able to be measured. It's about the quality. It's not a matter of how much you have but of having any at all. Even the slightest amount can be overwhelmingly effective because it's not faith in our own faith. It's simply faith in God. Faith that God is God, that God is able to act in the world. And if we believe in God even just a little bit, it's enough. The truth is, Walter Wink says, we always have faith. The problem is that we have faith in the wrong things. We believe in money or power or seductions. We trust the wrong things. So here is an invitation for Jesus, from Jesus, to say you have faith. Trust in the creator of the universe. That the creator of the universe 
knows what is good, knows what will bring life and joy to you and to the world. Put your faith and start taking those steps. And it's not a mistake. I think that Jesus uses this imagery of slave and master. All through the Bible, and mostly for our Western ears, it's translated servant. But all through the Bible, there is this analogy that we are slaves. If you choose to follow Jesus, we become slaves to Christ who becomes our master. There is only two English translations of the Bible that translate the word slave as slave. The rest soften it to servant. But the word is there and it's brutal. If you choose to follow Jesus, you become a slave and Jesus becomes your master. And this raises the question, why would you? In our culture that loves freedom, why would you surrender your freedom and become a slave and let someone become your master? And that I think you have to ask yourself then very carefully, who is this man, Jesus? Who is this man who invites me to give up my freedom, to hand over my sovereignty? And here, through scriptures, through the Bible, we hear the story. This is who Jesus is. A man who goes to the outcasts, the people on the margins, who brings healing and wholeness, who creates a new community, who challenges those who abuse power and ultimately gets killed, rises again and offers us this new life. This is who we are invited to choose as our master. It's a tricky concept to wrestle with. But here are the disciples, give us more faith. How can we choose this way of Jesus unless we have more faith? And what is it to go back? What is it that they're saying they need more faith for? They want more faith to live the way of Jesus because this is what Jesus says directly before. There will always be temptation to sin, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? It would be better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to fall into sin. So watch yourselves. If another believer sins, rebuke that person, even there. Then if there is repentance, forgive. Even if that person wrongs you seven times a day and each time turns again and asks for forgiveness, you must forgive. What do the disciples want more faith to do? To forgive to live the way of Jesus in the world, to love more, to forgive more, to not lead others into sin. They're not saying, give us more faith so we can do miracles. They're saying, give us more faith because we can't even follow your way of truth in the world. How do we learn to follow the way of truth? What Jesus is inviting his disciples and us is to consider the challenging, beautiful life that comes with walking his way of grace in the world. Here is the challenge, learn to walk the way of Jesus. And so we're encouraged, even if you have just a tiny amount of faith, 
Learn to walk the way of Jesus. Learn the way of love and forgiveness that brings joy and hope to a hurting world. And trust that as you take those first steps, the way will become clear. This is what we are called into. To give up and to put aside our own hopes and ambitions and dreams and trust that the creator of the universe knows what you need and knows what the world needs. And all we need is a tiny amount of faith to learn to walk the way of Christ in the world. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to ask Steffi to come and share a poem that she wrote this week that I think reflects on some of these themes as we consider what does it mean to have faith to follow Jesus. Let's pray together. Jesus, to our ears, this talk of becoming a slave, it hurts and we fight for our own freedom, for our rights. And we do that because ultimately underneath everything we don't trust you. We don't trust that you know what is good for us. We don't trust the plan you have for us. And we are sorry. Give us faith as small as a mustard seed so we can choose your way of love and forgiveness in the world. May we see our own lives transformed and the lives of those around us transformed as we choose to follow you. Holy Spirit, come and transform us, we pray. Amen. The stranger knocks, clonk, 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 three times, iron on iron. Some days I swing wide the, the door to my castle. I announce a feast with trumpets and Memphis meltdowns. Welcome the alien with carelessness for consequence and then misplace my sense of time and of status. What beautiful days where the sunshine is endless and the kingdom of heaven seems almost earthen. But most days I am too afraid of what might happen to me if the stranger does not turn out to be kind or interesting or enough to lift up my name into the humanly realm. And when Jesus knocks with the face of a woman I do not recognize, I keep one hand on my telephone in case of danger, and the other one holds my tongue as if to stop me from saying, welcome, welcome home.